0: Just a couple of announcements uh, t- uh, tonight. First of all, we're having a baptism on uh, September the 3rd at 1 o'clock, and that's going to be at the Stasi's home in Katy, and we'll provide all the information that will be out in the fellow- fellowship area. And uh, we have nine baptism candidates at this point, so if there's anyone else that... Uh, uh, wants to be baptized, and let let me know or let Cheryl know, and uh, we'll put you on the list and get that information to you. And the other thing is that um, we're going to be going to Israel next summer. Things look really good. I'm working with the travel agent right now to get a lot of the details uh, nailed down, and so that departure will be the 6th of June, and... Uh, at this point, that may fudge a little bit. Depends on the airlines. Every year I haggle. I I do not like going out of Newark, but that's United does that, and I don't want to go out of Chicago. And I found out today had Bill Katz. By the way, that some of you remember Bill Katz. Well, Bill is leaving Houston. This this whole thing with um, remote work. Has worked out well for him because his wife had an hour and a hour hour plus commute here in Houston, and so they're moving to Great Falls, Montana. He's got great opportunities to minister uh, to the Jewish community in Montana, who knew. And uh, she can work from home up there to her the job that she has here. So he's he's leaving, but he does a lot of work with uh, with tour groups going to Israel, and he told me that American Airlines has a flight that goes, I think it's Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, nonstop out of Dallas. So I'm looking for that because that would be a whole lot more convenient for everybody than having to go through Newark. So, uh, But every year I go through this. I fight for a month to get something better. And last year we finally got it with Air Canada, but then... Canada won't let anybody fly through their airspace unless they're vaccinated, so we just decided not to do it. All right, so get back in fellowship. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not grow weary. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, we need to uh, go to the Lord in prayer. As I pointed out in the email today, we need to pray for Ukraine, because there's been a lot of thinking that... that, um, Since tomorrow is the Independence Day of Ukraine from Russia, that there will be a massive Russian offensive against them tomorrow. So we need to be in prayer for that. And uh, prayer for Daniel as he gets things together to come uh, to the U.S. for a couple of years and study and uh, pursue his uh, degree. And it seems to me there was one other thing, but it will come to me in the middle of the message so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we have the opportunity to come to your throne of grace because the Lord Jesus Christ has opened the way. He has paid the price, and as our high priest, he has... Uh, provided entry into your presence. And, Father, we are thankful for all that you have provided for us as believers in this church age, and especially for your word that we have uh, a completed canon of Scripture. We have decent translations of your word, and that is something that the vast majority of believers throughout the centuries of the church age have not had. And so we're so thankful for all that we have, and we pray that we might not take it for granted. Now, Father, we do pray for Ukraine. We pray for all of those that we have ministered with and to and uh, some who are in Ukraine, their families. We pray for Luda and her family as they are uh, near the fighting and her parents are too old to move, too old to be uh, taken somewhere else, and we pray for their safety and watch out for them. And, Father, we do pray, too, for eager and uh, the ministries that he's engaged in with the military and with others. And, and Father, we're thankful for being able to get the um, promised book translated into Ukrainian and uh, distributed and just pray that uh, you will continue to open doors for other translations. Father, we do, we do pray for Daniel as he comes here that you'll uh, continue to provide and prepare the way. And Father, we pray for our nation, especially in this election year, that you would just uh, foil the uh, plots of those who would seek to undermine the Constitution, undermine the rule of law, destroy the integrity of this nation. And Father, we pray that you would open people's eyes to what is going on, that you would expose their evil. And Father, we pray that you would raise up men and women to serve uh, everywhere from the local city councils and and mayor's offices, uh, school districts especially, are desperately in need of believers who can oversee the curricula to make sure that it is not anti-American and anti-Christian. And Father, we need uh, to have uh, state representatives and legislators and judges on the bench that are... Uh, wise and biblically sound. And Father, we pray that you would bless us in this way, but if not, Father, we pray that we might be diligent and faithful in shining forth as lights in the midst of a wicked generation. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to many things as we study your word tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, in our Study of Judges, we're in one of the most difficult sections to go through, and that is this whole Gideon narrative. And this section from Judges 6, 7, 8, and 9, four long chapters. It's really the center, uh, not only sort of physically the middle of the book, but it is the center of the theology of the book. It is depicting uh, very graphically... How the nation has just internally corroded and corrupted itself, and and is destroying itself, and it's a great picture because it's a paradigm for what goes on in any nation that gets away from from the Lord. And um, you know, back in a previous administration, there was the slogan of uh, "Make America Great." Well, what made America great was the Bible. What made America great was the Word of God. What made America great was that it was the underlying principles of the Word of God that enabled uh, the nation to and the leaders of the nation to formulate a form of government that would be of, of value and would last and provide, uh, provide freedom so we have been studying a lot of those different aspects and we see just the the worst uh, form of what happens when men turn from god in in this section and it's it's tough to go through it's tough to teach and it's a picture of what happens when a nation turns to paganism and that's what we see all the way through here it affects everybody it affects the teachers it affects the uh the churches the pastors i can't tell you how how many pastors that i went through seminary with that just in one way or another just compromised their underlying uh, presuppositions of sola scriptura and that's that that is just what is standard in evangelical christianity today i was very fortunate in that when i when i was in i think my first year at seminary was about the time that that uh, Charlie Clough had come out with his Framework series, but he had originally written a book on creation that he thought was the first one. Most people don't even know what the first one is or have a copy, but it had to do with apologetics, and it had to do with the fact that in in presenting the gospel and talking to an unbeliever, you don't compromise your presuppositions in order to sort of go over to their side to help them walk back across the bridge. Once you walk to the other side, you've undercut your own position, as it were. So if you think of that bridge analogy, that truth is on one side and the lies on the other side, divine viewpoint, the gospel, the scriptures on one side, human viewpoints on the other side, that uh, in, in in a lot of apologetics methodology, the way you convince somebody the truth is to go over and think of something that they think validates truth. So now you're giving up your position to go to their side, and on the basis of their presuppositions, you want to convince them of the truth of the gospel. And And that impacted me in a lot of ways because... Fundamentally, what's happened in evangelicalism as paganism has influenced America, and just let me rephrase that, what's happened in Christianity in America due to the influence of paganism is people want to go along and get along. And so they'll put up with a little bit of compromise uh, in the way they think because they really don't want to make waves And the problem is, is when you do that, you're compromising your own position. You're undercutting your own position. And I saw this so many times. Uh, People give doctrinal statements. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. So do you believe in uh, psychotherapy? Sure, that helps a lot of people. Then you've undercut your position because psychotherapy isn't rooted in the Bible. It's rooted in human viewpoint. Do you believe in reading all these books as a pastor all about how to grow a church and how to build a church? Really? You do? Well, you know what? That's all built on sociology. That's not built on the Bible. So you've undercut your position. And again and again and again, I I have seen this. I have fought these battles. Tommy Ice and I were like two soldiers back-to-back fighting everybody uh, at Dallas because they had compromised these positions in the early 60s. And uh, uh, Louis Berry Chafer had said for years that uh, Dallas Seminary should never, ever have a Christian ed department. And he died in 52, and by 62, there was a uh, professor at Dallas who brought Christian ed into the curriculum. And along with Christian ed, psychology and counseling, and later he brought in spiritual formation groups, which is nothing more than mysticism, and it borrows all their assumptions out of the uh monasticism and meditation theories of the Middle Ages. And you just I just get to a point where I recognize where human viewpoint presuppositions are inevitably going to take people, and that includes a lot of organizations. There's not an organization, there's not a company, there's not a corporation in this country. I'll say there's a few exceptions, but those that are public companies... They're run by boards of directors that, whose whole mentality is shaped by the thinking, the human viewpoint, thinking of the world around us. And that's only going to lead them in certain directions when they deal with problems and social problems and things like that within the network of their companies. And, you know, it just smells like a rat, and it is a rat. And, uh, I've seen that for, for, for 40 years. And I continue to see it. You, I don't have to have all of the details to know where it heads because that's what happens. And that's what this chapter is demonstrating to us. This is where human viewpoint leads. It leads to the collapse of a culture, and it leads to the absolute chaos of the tyranny that you have here with, uh, with Abimelech. So that's why, what we're learning from this is how to, how to spot these things and it affects, it affects the uh, priests and, and judges, it affects the priesthood, it affects the people for us. We have lost the education institutions and that doesn't mean there aren't good teachers who are squared away in, in different public schools. But they're the exception, they're not the rule unless you just happen to be in a, in a district that is is somewhat focused, and you'll find strong believers there who are who are doing a good and honorable job, but that's not the trend of the culture. The trend of the culture is to go in the direction of California, the direction of New York City, the direction of Boston, and and um, that's where it leads every every single time. And um, We've lost the education because they come out of the schools of education. I I minored because you to get a, a teacher certificate in the state of Texas, you have to minor in education, and it was just such a stench. I hated those classes there because even though I had not gone to seminary, of course yet, or anything like that, I understood that their view of man, what we refer to as biblical anthropology, was completely flawed. Therefore, their whole education theory was flawed. Their concept of of how a person learns was flawed. Uh, everything about it was flawed to some degree, which is one reason that I was glad to get out of it and go to seminary. But uh most people don't think like that most people haven't been trained to think like that and they, so they can't see the problems that are really going on that are right under their nose and they compromise with it and so that's one of the things i try to point out as we go through judges so that people will wake up and have a lot more discernment where in wherever they are and whatever role they're in and so as we go through this whole Decline from one judge to the other. We're right here between Gideon and Jephthah. And it's this long section. And then the last two that we will look at are Jephthah and Samson. And, and they're just bizarre, bordering on barbaric, especially Jephthah, because he sacrifices his daughter. So we, they go through these cycles and it's all about the grace of God because God delivers them many times, even when, um, even when they don't deserve it, even when they don't cry out for it, he delivers them out of his compassion and out of his grace. So we're in this section dealing with what's going on in ancient Shkem. That's how you pronounce the Hebrew for Shechem. It's Shkem. and Shkem wasn't very big. Here it is right here. This is the archaeological dig right in this area. It's just a real small area but well, one of the reasons I kept this slide in there was I wanted you to notice what we're looking at in terms of the uh, physiological features. What are you looking at here? You have a mountain on one side, you have a mountain on the other side, and you're looking down this valley, and you're looking due west. I want you to remember that because that plays an important role in what goes on in this chapter. You're looking due west, which means where, it, it, where are we standing uh, looking at the city? We're on the east. At sunrise, what's behind us? The sun. Yeah, that's important. It's not brought out in the text, but it's obvious if you think geographically. That's one of the reasons it's always helpful to go to Israel. So anyway, last time uh, we looked at the parable of the bramble, and this was told by the only surviving uh, son of Gideon, and his name was Jotham, and he stood up and, on Mount Gerizim up here where he had sort of an amphitheater behind him and uh, which strengthened his, uh, his volume. And so he gives this, this parable, and it is a significant critique of kingship. What was interesting is somebody texted me last week and said, well, this is listed in Aesop's fables. Aesop put together his fables, around 600 this is around uh, 1200 1300 where did aesop get his fable it came from here okay you know most a, a lot of the world thinks that it's the other way around that the greeks came up with it and then you know something happened and it gets introduced into the bible but it's the other way around so he goes through this this parable and he is critiquing kingship. He's not critiquing government per se, because remember, government is a divine institution. He is critiquing kingship, and he is critiquing the what the, what the dangers are of, of a single individual in authority. And so he's pointing out the significant problems of kingship and national leadership because every human leader that has ever led any nation in history is a corrupt sinner and they have a sin nature and they are prone to power lust and they are prone to uh, prone to sexual lust they are prone to approbation lust they are prone to all the lust patterns of the sin nature and that leads to a lot of problems and what's so wonderful about this nation is that our our founding fathers understood this. They knew what evil leaders were capable of, and they sought to protect the citizens of this country through a series of checks and balances. We know that there are three basic branches of government, and um, and those branches are the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And I remember some years ago on one of the morning shows, they were, had somebody on the st- street asking people what the three branches of government were, and, of course, all they got was blank stares. Uh, but those are the three branches of government, and they're to check. Check means to halt somebody, okay? And that, that, that's the role is to halt things that may be co- contrary to the Constitution, and what the effect that that has is it slows down the process. And we live in a world today where you hear a lot of people who are extremely impatient. They just want to change things rapidly. Well, the Founding Fathers realized that you need to change things slowly, not get in a hurry. And so the legislative process, as outlined in the Constitution, is designed to prevent uh, the executive branch from issuing all these kinds of executive orders and dictates uh, which are really the only the purview of the legislative branch so w- with the introduction the use of these executive orders over the last 30 or 40 years, it's gotten worse with each each following administration. it just takes away from the the, the authority of the people, the right of the uh, uh, of the people and so, over the 233 years that this republic has been in existence, we've seen that slow, gradual erosion of these checks and balances. And now the last several elections, you always hear about removing uh, the uh, – uh, using the uh, electoral college to elect a president. And, uh, cha- you know, we they changed – the Democrats changed the rules on the um, – uh, filibuster several years ago, and that's having devastating consequences, because when people want to hurry up and change things, you just ought to smell a rat right off the right off the bat. I did not mean to rhyme, um, but that's 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 immediate. So anyhow, a couple, four conclusions we saw from that was first of all, in the civilizations of the ancient world kingship was viewed as a positive. This is the human viewpoint perspective. Kingship is a good thing. Uh, The king, as I pointed out last time, in Egypt was divine, was an incarnation of the God, and in the Mesopotamian empires was a son of the deity. But in this parable, government is viewed as not only self-destructive, or kingship was viewed as self-destructive, but destructive to a nation, It's because it's ruled by by somebody's lust patterns, and that always leads uh, leads to problems. Uh, Under the only under the constitution of the Mosaic Law was Israel to have freedom. Freedom it doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. Freedom must be under control. It just like what makes a an athlete. Uh, superior it's that they are disciplined they are going to say I can't eat that I can't stay out late I have to get my sleep they're going to say I have to do exercise you have to do your, your exercises a certain way and that's discipline and what? And, and that means there's a lot of things they can't do that they aren't allowed to do, won't allow themselves to do and that in enables them to channel uh, themselves in a productive area so that they can be successful. And so uh, this is what what a government of good laws with a good constitution, with the rule of law has, is that those laws enable the people then to be the best they can be and to be productive. But you always have the problem of self-serving government officials. Second point of the, of the uh, parable is that people of integrity are engaged in uh, p- providing productive services for society. They, are, they recognize that if they're in manufacturing, that that which they manufacture is good and helpful for society. They're going about the regular business of living and benefiting their community. And those in rulership... Uh, are seen as somewhat less. They've lowered themselves from being a productive private citizen to now serving in government because they seek power, they seek attention, they seek approbation, something like that. Third, rulers are often attracted to power. They'll say anything to get elected. They'll do anything to... Uh, push other people out of the way so that they can achieve uh, their position of power. And uh, it all all of this appeals to the lust patterns of the sin nature and their own self-interest. And then the fourth point is that more often than not, God in his permissive will allows nations to have the leaders they deserve. In our country, we're getting leaders that have been brought up within the cultural cesspool of postmodernism and the uh, critical uh, social justice theories, and they're bringing that with them to go serve in Washington. So you're looking at any number of uh, 30-somethings who are qualified by age to serve as representatives and they're a little older to be a senator But they have all grown up being trained mentally by the cesspool of our culture. And the result of that is they take that cesspool with them to Washington, D.C. And so what's the result going to be? Well, it's not going to be a crystal clear blue swimming pool, I'll tell you that. It's going to be just another septic tank. And that's what we're getting. So... God allows us at times to get leaders that are, that we don't deserve. That are, that are, we're not worthy of. They're good leaders. And that changes, that's just the grace of God. That happened in Israel many times and it's ha- happened in our country many times. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so we get into chapter 22. I'm in mean, chapter 9, verse 22, where, about where we ended last time. And we have the statement after uh, Abimelech had reigned three years over Israel. Now, this is an unusual kind of statement because usually uh, when you get into uh, Kings and Chronicles, you'll say at the end of their life, so-and-so reigned for so many years. But this, he, Abimelech's not dead yet. And at the beginning it says he reigned three years. So what do you know from that? That by the end of this account, Abimelech's going to be dead. It's foreshadowing. So after Abimelech had reigned over Israel for three years, and what we're going to see is that a God is going to providentially intervene. In 1787 at the Constitutional Convention, this a well-known event occurred when, after several weeks of squabbling amongst themselves, uh, Benjamin Franklin stood up, and I don't know if Benjamin Franklin was a believer or not. A lot of people think that he wasn't, but you don't know. One of his closest friends was the great evangelist George Whitefield, who was sort of like the Billy Graham of his day. Now, that doesn't mean that, that uh, Franklin was saved, But most of these statements you hear from the vast majority of the so-called deist founding fathers, they only had a period of time in their life when they uh, doubted Christianity and usually came late in life, like John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. In fact, the evidence is that up until Thomas Jefferson was in his mid-30s and his wife died, uh, he was a a very faithful and loyal uh, servant... That was in the uh, excuse me a minute spam call. Um, that he was uh, he was a faithful, loyal subscriber. Had to be. He was a deacon in the um, in the Anglican Church, and he had to subscribe to the Thirty Nine Articles, to the Articles of Faith. And back in those days, you didn't have this lack of integrity that people say today. Oh yeah, I believe that, and they really don't. So. Uh, All of these statements that a lot of these men made that that are quoted, and it's really not that many men, it's only three or four, uh, they were made late in life, not early in life. So we really don't know. But Benjamin Franklin stood up and he said, I've lived a long time, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. That's exactly what we're studying here. God is governing, providentially ruling in the affairs of Israel, but not in the sense that he's bringing about something good, as, as uh, Franklin was talking about with the Constitution but, and with the birth of this nation. But God was bringing about discipline on this nation. That's what this whole chapter is about. And notice how long it is. It's 52 verses. It is like slugging your way through the quicksand of a cesspool or something like that. It's just hard to go through this. So this is a summary and a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. And I want to go to the last couple of verses, verses 56 and 57, because they tell us what the theme is at the end. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. That's what this is showing. God said, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Now that's not a, that's not my favorite translation of the Hebrew word there. It really has to do with, with the, the ultimate determination of justice. It's not, we think of vengeance as getting some sort of personal revenge on somebody. That's not the sense of the word. It is bringing justice, returning justice on the heads of those who deserve it. And that's what we see a picture of in, in judges. Uh, Judges chapter 9. So the way God does it is not visible to the Israelites. Abimelech doesn't know about this. Jotham doesn't know about this. None of the men of Shechem know anything about this. But we see the curtain pulled back as we do in a few instances in the Old Testament, where we realize the, the impact of the angelic revolt and that you have this, this conflict that's going on, this revolt and this war going on between the elect or holy angels and the fallen angels, those who followed Satan uh, in, his, in his rebellion against God. And so what happens is God is, you've you got two options here. Uh, one option is this is a spirit of ill will is how the New King James translates it, which is really poor. Uh, It is a a Hebrew phrase, it is ruach ra'ah. Ra'ah is the word for, can mean evil, it can mean uh, wickedness, but it has a range of meaning. It can also mean calamity. So there is a view out there which may have some substance to it, that in this case this isn't a demon, it isn't an evil spirit, it is a spirit who will produce calamity. And so God is intervening in th- what is going on in Shechem in order to make the house of cards collapse. And that's what this spirit is doing. And um, so God sent, a, I wouldn't say a spirit of ill will, but a spirit of calamity to cause a breach in the trust and reliance of Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem begin to deal treacherously with Abimelech. They lose faith in him, and so they are faithless men as far as Abimelech is concerned. And then in verse 24 it says... Uh, that the crime, see, it goes back to that first line, God sent a spirit of of calamity in order that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might be settled and their blood laid on Abimelech, their, their brother. See, God is sending this spirit in order to cause a disruption in Abimelech's plans and his his uh, alliance with the leaders of Shechem, so that he God is going to bring justice to bear on Abimelech. You have to remember, justice is something that is objective; it is not subjective. Justice isn't when I get my way in court. That is what uh, our speaker on Saturday Saturday morning said. Um, he was a great speaker, by the way. We, uh, you know, I had a friend of mine who came on Saturday morning, and he texted me after. He said, I learned so much about the judicial system and about laws. I mean, it was such a great education, and whoever the, the, uh, the second judge that was supposed to speak never showed up. Uh, so our, our, um, our, our fir- the first speaker spoke the whole time, and his name escapes me right now, but Landrum, Michael Landrum. And he's spoken before. He spoke three or four years ago here, and he just seems like a, a tremendous individual and and really squared away. And he started off talking about when he talks to cl- classes at Houston Baptist that he le- lectures at. He talks about what justice is, and it's the, the, the it's objective. It's not getting what I want. It's not self centered. It's based on an objective reality of what the what the law says. So anyway, God is sending this, this spirit to cause this disruption, this breach of trust between the lords, the Baal, that's what they're called. That word means leaders or law, law, lords of Shechem and uh, Abimelech. And the purpose for this is to bring, uh, bring home the sin of Abimelech and to destroy him and to d- destroy uh, his conspiracy and what he's trying to do because he killed all of his brothers, the sons of Gideon, and uh, and so he's he's um, uh, he's due for God's justice. So God's going to intervene, and that's the only time we've seen God mentioned in a in a active way in this whole chapter. God is conspicuously absent, except for this uh, one statement. And so what the men of Shechem do. Is they're going to set up, send out their patrols to, uh, ambush those who are coming along the, the roads and the trading routes that surround Shechem. As I pointed out in that, uh, that picture, there's that valley that goes right behind them. That's the, that's the Nablus Valley today. And if you go back west through that valley, that is where the future city uh of samaria will be built and uh sometimes we've had the opportunity to go there and walk walk around there i hope we can uh arrange that the next time we go but i'm um, it's it's so difficult israelis don't like any tourists to go into uh those areas and that's where the good stuff is so I'm always working try, working my way to try to get us into those places and get somebody to take us there, and that's always an adventure. So uh, they're going to set up these ambushes on the caravans, and rob everyone that go goes along, sort of like being in some parts of Houston or a lot of parts of Houston now, is that you're just going to be set upon by these gangs and by individual criminal gangs that are breaking into cars and uh, stealing catalytic converters and smashing grabs and everything else that goes on. And this this is what's destructive, but this is the result, the consequence of an ignorant uninformed electorate who just elected a whole uh, array of a whole panel of democrat judges many of whom wouldn't even show up for work they they, they've got a backlog in one court it's going to be three years before murderers are brought to trial because the judge wasn't going to get in public uh, with um, because of covid i'm just extremely destructive and all these Need to be, there's 68 judges in Harris County on the slate, and everyone's a competitive race. That means there's a Republican running against a Democrat. And this, this is, this, this can, that, this one election can change the whole social structure of this city if everybody voted Republican. And he was objective enough to say, well, not, not every Democrat on there is bad some are good some are honest and some have some measure of integrity uh the trouble is we live in such a partisan time right now that um that that pressure is being brought to bear from those in the party against uh, against those who aren't going along with them so that's what's going on here is it just criminality and then we have this guy show up out of nowhere and he is going to foam, he is going to attempt to foment at a rebellion against Abimelech. And his name is Gaal. Gaal, the son of Evid, and he comes up and he has a little speech which is co- quite convincing to people. It's a little difficult to understand just reading the prose. He says, who is Abimelech? They should have they should have put a period there or a question mark, who is Abimelech question mark end of thought, and then in contrast, he says, and who is shechem see he is he is creating a contrast which we've already seen between Shechem, who is the uh, one for whom Shechem is named. You're introduced to him back in Genesis 34, uh, 25 to 29, and 30, Genesis 33. Shechem's father was Hamor. and This is that, that really difficult circumstance where Dinah, the sister of the 12 sons of, of uh, Judah, I mean not Judah, of Jacob, uh, the progenitors of the tribes, uh, where where she goes in and she's sort of being courted by Shechem and he rapes her date rape, and and so she goes back and she complains to her brothers and two of the brothers go back and they say okay well we'll let her marry you, but we're going to have a little um, you all have to be circumcised first. And so they all, all the men in the in the town said, "Okay, we'll we'll go through that." And that must have been miserable as an adult male. And so while they're all trying to recover from this non-anesthetized circumcision, then these two brothers came in and killed them all. That just shows that the the brothers, the 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 sons of Jacob were just as bad as the Canaanites. That's one reason God took them all to Egypt later on. And uh, so that's Hamor and his son Shechem. And so Shechem is the one for whom the town is named, and so the people there are Shechemites. So uh, Gaal is saying, who's Abimelech? Look, you guys are the descendants of Shechem and Hamor. Uh, let's have a little patriotism here. Let's let's have a little excitement and come together, and we can throw off this this guy. He's come in here. He's just a murderer. He's uh, he's committed fratricide uh, seventy times. So why should we serve him? And then he says, "Oh, if you were only under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech." And so he then uh, gets a positive response from the crowd, and he, he challenges Abimelech to, to a fight. And uh, Abimelech has a right-hand man who is the mayor, as it were, of, of Shechem, and his name is Zebul. He's the ruler of the city, and he heard the words of Gaal, and his anger was aroused, so he just fuming and getting angrier and angrier as you have this political speech from Gaal to Foment Rebellion. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, you need to pay attention, so apparently Abimelech's out of town somewhere. And so he gives him a war- warning and says they're gonna, he's going to create an army and lead an insurrection against you when you, uh, while you're gone. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. So so, so what Zabul says is you need to go out on the outside of the city. Now, you can't lie away easily and hide up in the mountains just in Gerizim and Ebal because there's not a lot of vegetation there. So they would be east of the city. So he's saying you go out and you lie down and, and hide yourselves in the field and as soon as the sun is up in the morning, then you'll rise up early just as the sun's coming up and there's mountains behind them. So what happens is as the sun's coming up, just as it comes over the mountains, it's going to be blinding those who are in the city because they're on the west side looking east. And not only that, but, but it's casting a shadow from those mountains down into the valley between Shechem and those mountains. And so that's going to mess with your vision. I mean, you're looking in the bright light. You can't see what's happening in the shadows. You just see some things that are that are going on, and that's what is being described here. It shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. When you and the people who are with him come out against you, you may then do to them... As you find opportunity, in other words, do with them as you please. In verse 34, we see this is what Abimelech did. He took the people with him. They went up by night and they lay in wait for an ambush and divided into four companies. And so when Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaal saw the people, he sees shadows. He sees movement. He said to Zebul... He says, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, no, you're just seeing the shadows of the mountains move as the sun's coming up. Makes it look like men. You're having a little hallucination. So then God spoke again and said, see, people are coming down from the center of the land, and another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Now, that's nobody really knows what that is. But if you go back to Genesis, there is a, the Oak of Mora there in, um, uh, Oaks of Mora, which is an area just on the shoulder of Mount Ebal, just above Shechem. And it's probably a place where the soothsayer, the local pagan diviner would go and uh, tell everybody's fortunes. Then Zabal said, where, where's your mouth now? Uh, talking to, uh, uh, Gaal who is Abimelech that we should serve him are not these the people whom you despise look they've surrounded you and they're going to take you out so if you if you still want to win you're going to have to go out and fight them so he went out leading the men of Shechem and fought with Abimelech and Abimelech chased him and he fled and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate then Abimelech dwelt at Aramah, which is, uh, we don't know exactly where it is, but it's a town close to Shechem. And Zebul drove out Gaal and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. Now what's interesting is that this this reference here to the entrance of the gate. So what they had looked something like this. So here are the gates. And you would have guard rooms on each side. This is kind of a schematic of what it looked like. You have the city walls, and so you would have. Uh, if they had these. They had the guards here, so it'd be difficult once you breached the gate to go through, and, and you're you're basically in in a trap. And here is a picture of the city gate at Megiddo. And that was really interesting because it has kind of like a, a, a right angle turn. You go in the first gate, and then you see these guard houses here on the side, and then you have to make a, right, a a left turn here, right angle turn to go through the second gate. And a number of us have been walked through the ruins of that there in, um, uh, in Megiddo. So the standard gate was pictured is pictured in this slide from uh, Geezer and Hazor, but this is the gate at Megiddo. So that makes it very difficult to go through in a hurry. You have to make this hard left turn. Well, then we're told in verse 42, and it came about on the next day, so this is moving us forward one day, only 24 hours later, people went out into the field and they told Abimelech, So he now he divides them into three companies. He lays in wait in the field and he looks and their people coming out of the city and so he attacks them. And as a result of that they are able to breach the gate and they and then the other two companies attack those who are in the field and kill them. So they're they're slaughtering all of the Shechemites. They are bringing judgment Abimelech's troops are destroying all the men of Shechem and the leaders of Shechem because they participated in his uh, in his sin as well. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day, took the city, killed the people who were in it, demolished the city and sowed it with salt. They would sow it with salt so stuff couldn't be planted and it wouldn't wouldn't grow and uh but the leaders are at least a subgroup of the leaders the men of the tower of Shechem and so the supposition here is you had the the leaders and then there's a smaller group and they are there's a tower there uh you have the uh uh perimeter wall here's a city wall here they came in through this gate and then you had the temple of Ba'al Berith and there was a Um, massive standing stone here that was probably went very high it was a a pillar and they have actually found in the archaeological digs uh, the remnants of that which was here so this is the area of the temple and i've been there uh, twice and been able to walk around and look at everything and you just take judges nine with you and walk around and See all the stuff that they have there. It's great fun. Um, So Abimelech is told that these men have congregated for protection inside the tower, and so he goes to Mount Zalman. Now, nobody knows what Mount Zalman is. The only guess is that it's another name for either Mount Gerizim or Mount Ebal. And they go up there, and they took their axes, and they cut down... Uh, trees for firewood or they found trees that were falling you can't cut down a green tree and burn it that doesn't do you any good at all it's too green and so they come back and he shows them how to uh, lay all the wood around the base of the tower and set it on fire and the result is that all the people in the tower uh, die about a thousand men and women that was a big tower that's a lot of people so Shechem is virtually destroyed. The population is annihilated by Abimelech, this man that they were uh had gone into a partnership with. But God is not yet through with Abimelech. Notice how God uses Abim he's going to use Abimelech to bring discipline upon the, the people of Shechem and then God's going to take care of Abimelech his own way. So Abimelech goes to Thebes, which is another town a little further away, and they capture it. But there's a strong tower in that city, and there they repeats the same thing that they did in Shechem. All the men and women go into the tower and shut themselves up there for protection. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Remember, back in the bramble uh, fable, that fire is going to come out from the bramble. Okay, that's this is a fulfillment of that. So he he's going to uh, burn it with fire, and, but there's a certain woman. She's not named. It, it, the way it's written in the Hebrew, it just means. But there was a woman nothing specific about her, and she drops an upper millstone. Now, this is a large stone that is used in a mill to grind uh, grain. So she drops this. She must have been working out a good bit to carry that, and she rolls this up probably on top of the wall, and Abimelech comes under her, and she just pushes it down, and it crushes his skull, which sounds like it would be a fatal wound, but it wasn't. He's still able to communicate. So he motions to his servant, his armor bearer, and says to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed him. That was back in the day when they understood that there were still important distinctions between the sexes. And so he is. Uh, it would be dishonorable uh, for him to be killed by a woman. And so the young man kills him, but everybody knows what the woman did. And uh, she's, the, she's the heroine like Jael back in chapter 4 when she drives the tent peg uh, through Sisera's head. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. Well, we can't fight once the leader's killed. It's sort of like the situation they had up at Adobe Walls in the Panhandle uh, back in the, I think it was in the 1870s, uh, and you had um, a Comanche attack on this group of hunters that were down in, a, in Adobe Walls. I think Bat Masterson was one of them. I forget who the others were, but there was um, one of them was, had his uh, uh, sharps, I believe, was his rifle, but maybe not, because I don't think a carbine would have made it that far. You think it was the Sharps? And and on this ridge line were three Comanche uh, chiefs. And it was just a heck of a shot. And he knocked one off his horse. And that, that put the fear into the rest of the Comanches, and they took off. And that was the, I think it was the first battle of Adobe Walls, or second. I forget which one now. It's been a long time since I've read it. But but once the chief gets shot, then everybody leaves the battlefield and everybody goes home. And that's what happens here, that the um, uh, Abimelech is dead, so everybody goes home, every man goes to his place. So what's the conclusion? God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech. This is divine justice at work. This is the unseen hand of God the providential direction of God in bringing about justice. And Abimelech is dead uh, because of what he did to kill uh, his 70 brothers and all the evil of the men of Shechem. See, they're not guilt-free either. God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. And even though Jotham is not said to be a prophet, it's not said that what he said was a prophecy or divinely inspired, there's a hint that it might have been because in his opening statement, back in verse 7, he said, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So there is certainly divine providence. At, at the minimum, there is divine providence behind his words, and uh, his, his uh, words were somewhat prophetic and brought about the destruction of, of Abimelech. And so this uh, ends the Gideon, Gideon and son uh, section of the book. So next time we'll come back. And we'll be in chapter 10, where we go through very short verses on several minor, minor judges in verses 1 through 4. And then we come to the next oppression, uh, which is, uh, which is going to relate to the Ammonites invasion and raising up Jephthah in chapter, chapter 11. So we'll get to that whole thing next time. Father, thank you for the, Opportunity to study this, to learn uh, how you work behind the scenes, how you are constantly overseeing history, that as Benjamin Franklin put it, you govern in the affairs of men and that you bring about justice, even though uh, it may not be something that we see in our own lifetime. It may not be something that we... Uh, know about, but we know from these examples in Scripture that they are sure and certain, and ultimately justice will be doled out at the great white throne. So, Father, we thank you for this uh, study and look forward to what we will continue to learn in in this book. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.